today's session may run a little bit longer. And the reason for that is, um, even though we did a, a basic intro last week, um, that was kind of an intro to an intro. So this week we're gonna like go really fast through the intro to this course. And I've tried to condense six to eight weeks of material into this one session because I didn't want us to go for eight weeks on an introduction. Um, I wanted us to get to the more interesting, fun part of the course where you actually start like having, you know, uh, looking at the historical data and why we believe certain things. Um, so, but I do feel that the introduction is important because it kind of sets up like a baseline for the rest of the course. So I'm gonna give like a quick, hopefully I can do it in 10 minutes, max 20, uh, presentation which is going to summarize the first six weeks of material and then we're we're going to watch two videos which will finish the introduction and then next week we'll start with the first really interesting uh, lesson so bear with me through this and um, I will be asking questions maybe in between or at the end but uh, that said please listen to what's being said because some of it is going to be based on the material. And the reason I'm doing that is not to be like a teacher who's giving you like a pop quiz type of thing, but I'm doing it for reinforcement. So the more times you hear an answer to the same question, the more likely you are to remember it in the future if someone brings it up or if you need to make an argument for something, right? <clears throat> okay. So let me figure out how to share my screen. Okay, so when it comes to how people take faith on, there's basically three modes of thought. The first one is called, and this might go a little philosophical, but just bear with me. Um, the first one is called fideism, right? And this one is basically, Faith cannot have any rational basis. It's all feelings and emotion. It's what we call blind faith. So I believe what I believe. I had an experience. I don't need proof. Um, and in fact, even going as far as to say there doesn't need to be proof or um, even if I'm given proof that contradicts what I believe, I will still continue to believe because I take absolutely everything on faith. So that's at one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have rationalism. And this is all reason and no faith. So this point of view, this worldview is, if it can't be proven to me, then I will not believe it. Anything that doesn't conform to science or archeology span or logic, it's out. So we don't wanna fall into either of these categories. We want to fall into something called reasonable faith, which is a perfect mixture and balance of the two. Um, it's faith and reason working together. So we're not swinging into, I'm just going to take everything by faith and I need no logical reasons or responses to any type of argument. I don't need any proof. And we're not going to go on the side of, if it can't be proven, I don't believe it. We want to find this perfect balance. So how we do that is we take reasonable faith and we kind of break it up into two categories. So you have the first category, which is things that are known by reason. 
And then you have the second category, which is mysteries of the faith. So things known by reason, this is things that can actually be proven, whether it's by science, archaeology, historical record, reason. And, and some examples of those are, and this might sound contradictory, but the fact that God exists, that's actually something we can prove with our reason. Um, the fact that there is one God and he created everything, those are another two examples of something that can be known by reason. Those are the things we have proof for, and a lot of that is what we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. Then the next section is actually the bulk of our faith, which we call mysteries of the faith. These are things that we can't necessarily 100% explain by reason and science, but we trust it because someone else who has a lot of authority has told us this. And in this case, God is the person with that authority. Okay. Um, and this is something that we do all the time without realizing it. When you were a child and you sat in your teacher's classroom and she taught you a lesson, you weren't sitting the whole time thinking that she's lying to you because you trusted her authority. You trusted her ability to teach you. The same goes for your parents. For a long time, you trusted everything they said because they had your best interests at heart. Now you can take that further. When you go to the doctor and um, he diagnoses you with something, generally you don't have to go and study Dalton, correct me if I'm wrong, 8,000 years of medicine, <laughs> eight or more years of medicine to be able to verify that, right? We don't have time to verify everything that's ever told to us. So we trust the doctor because we trust that through his medical training, he has the authority and the wisdom to be able to diagnose us. So we take it on his authority. Um, the same with science. We don't know everything about biology, but we trust what a biologist will tell us. We don't know everything about the weather, but when a climatologist or a person on the news comes on and says, tomorrow it's going to rain, we take that on their authority. And now in human terms, there's chances that those people can be wrong, but we generally come from a position of faith and trusting what that person has said because of their background. So when it comes to faith, once we've established um, things known by reason, so that God exists, if God exists, we can take things on his authority. And the things that we take on his authority are classified as mysteries of the faith. However, we're not always hearing directly from God, right? Um, we also trust people that hear from an authority figure. An example of that would be a king. If a king sends a messenger somewhere with a message, or if a president sends a diplomat to another country, he's still relaying what the person in authority is saying. And we believe that that messenger or that herald because he is speaking on behalf of someone else's authority. And so the same is true when it comes to faith. We might not always be able to hear directly from God, but we trust other people who come on his behalf. So that leads us to the question of how do we know if a man has spoken for God? Because obviously there's lots of people that claim that they speak for God. Um, there's multiple uh, Christian cults that have claimed that, that they've heard some divine revelation from God and therefore they break off into a separate cult because they have the word of God. 
You have other faiths uh, like the Muslims who had the prophet Muhammad who apparently heard from God. And so they have their own separate religion. And so how do we know if someone who claims to be a messenger from God is actually a messenger from God? So there's two things that we can look at. We can look at fulfilled prophecies and miracles. Now this might seem, especially to some people, a little risky, especially with the miracles one, because even today there are a lot of people that claim that they perform miracles, but there's not a lot of proof for it. So I want us to focus our attention more looking back into the past. We're specifically speaking about during the first century when Jesus walked the earth, he claimed to be the most divine messenger from God, the Messiah, the person who comes on the authority and anointing of God. And so how do we know if he spoke for God? We look at two things, fulfilled prophecies and miracles. And you can extend this to other people as well, but I'm going to focus in on Jesus. And so fulfilled prophecies is a great one because that's not something that you can pretend. If something was prophesied and written about hundreds of years ago, and then a person comes and fulfills it, or an event happens that fulfills it, that validates the person who gave the message, right? So in the case of Jesus, we have um, multiple prophecies, especially in the book of Isaiah, that spoke about the coming of Jesus. And this was written, I think, approximately 400 years, four to 600 years before Jesus came. And Jesus fulfilled um, almost all the prophecies. And I say almost because the ones that weren't fulfilled uh, we as Christians believe the few that are left will be fulfilled at the coming of Christ. And that's what the book of Revelation confirms to us. So as a Christian, we can say that he has fulfilled all prophecy because we know in the book of Revelation, it speaks how he will fulfill the last few things that are left undone. But even just the prophecy he's fulfilled right now, um, I actually should have looked up the statistics, but I didn't. The probability that any one man could accomplish all those prophecies in his lifetime, even if he purposefully was trying to do it, is some astronomically small number that renders it practically impossible. So the fact that Jesus could fulfill all these prophecies gives validation to his message. Um, the second thing is miracles. And nowadays, like I said, we, we get a little nervous around this because there are a lot of people that claim that miracles happen and we don't know if it's true. And I mean, I personally do believe miracles are still around. Blueprint as a church believes that miracles are still active today, but it's a fact that there are many false miracles that get portrayed as real. So I will point out this, not to discount anything that's modern, but a lot of modern things that are counted as miracles, there's nothing that you can actively see in that moment has changed you'll notice a lot of it is inside right like oh i had a stomach ache and now it's gone or i had a headache and now it's gone and i'm not saying all of those are false but it's really hard to discern when you can't actually see that miracle come about jesus was kind of the opposite of that um most of the miracles we see him perform at least the ones recorded um in scripture are ones that you could see a very dramatic difference. Here was a person who couldn't walk, 
and then they're walking. He was a person who couldn't see and now they see. A person who was deaf and now they hear. You know, a person who was demon possessed and chained to a cave naked because they couldn't be controlled is now in their sound mind and coherent. So the miracles were very obvious and um, verifiable. So for example, one of the, um, the blind men who Jesus healed, he goes to the, the temple to offer a gift and the, um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, are questioning how he got healed. And you can tell that they kind of doubt what's happening because they call in his parents and they want to check with these parents was this guy really blind from the day he was born? Because, you know, maybe, maybe he just, you know, something got in his eyes for a while and now suddenly it's, it's cleared up by itself. And his parents come and validate, yes, he was born blind. We don't know how he's able to see now years and years later, but he was born blind. And so uh, within themselves, the gospels validate miracles because they give eyewitnesses to how the person was before and then eyewitnesses to how the person was after. So Jesus himself validated this method of um, approving or showing whether someone did come from God. And so did the apostles. Um, I'm, I think I'm going to read a scripture or two. Uh, I'm going to read them all out to you so you can go and read them on your own if you're interested, but I'll only read like two. Um, Matthew 11, verse 2 to 5. Matthew 11, verse 2 to 5. John uh, chapter 10, verse 37 to 38. John chapter 10, verse 37 to 38. John 14, verse 11. John 14, verse 11, Mark 2, verse 3 to 12, Mark 2, verse 3 to 12, and John 20, verse 30 to 31. John 20, verse 30 to 31. So I'm going to pick some from John to read. Um, let's see. John 10, 37, okay, 37 to 38. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. So that's one example of where Jesus is saying, if you don't believe my words, when I say, hey, I'm the son of God, I'm the Messiah, then look at the works I do and let them speak for themselves. Um, let's see another one. Uh, John 14, verse 11. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So that's just two verses. And I didn't manage to get the verses where the apostles do the same thing, whether they speak about believing in, in the works that they do, the works that Jesus did as evidence that he is the Messiah. But those are just five verses that I gave you now that affirm that Jesus himself said, you can look at the work I do, the miracles, the fact that I fulfill prophecy as evidence that I speak on behalf of God. So the reason that 
we say that we we've said all of this is the fact that we're going to go through um, the gospels and some of the new testament books and the reason that we are stating this is because we can trust what these people say one because um in the gospels they're speaking about jesus and he confirms what he says by his works and by fulfilling prophecy and then the apostles themselves also performed miracles that were very visible and verifiable and they spoke on christ's behalf because he gave um he gave them that authority and so that's why we as christians can trust that word so you might say okay but that doesn't that's not good enough for a non-believer right that's true that's why you have to go back to this when you're speaking to someone who's questioning the faith faith you're first going to go in for things known by reason if you can prove that small piece of the pie to them if you can prove there is a god there is only one god he created everything and this is the god that we believe in if you can verify that with that person with evidence, reason, logic, all the things that we're gonna speak about, you have now given authority to God's word because we know all these things because it's written in scripture. So if you can establish that with a non-believer or a skeptic, then you can start speaking to them about the other part of our faith, the things that we can't 100% verify all the time, but we take on the authority of the people who spoke them. And then the last thing, whoopsie, um, is throughout this course, um, the speakers, because we're going to jump around between different people on topics, there is no, they emphasize that there is nothing that you can prove 100%. Um, and that's especially because we're using historical documents and no matter what historical documents you used on anyone or anything, there is no ways that we can prove 100% that something is accurate. But you don't need to aim for 100% or as it says here, certitude. You don't need to prove certitude. All you need to prove is that what we believe has a preponderance of the evidence. That beyond a reasonable doubt, we can have faith in Christianity and in the word of God. And we do this as humans naturally. For example, in a court of law, there could be a person who comes in and is um, charged with some crime and the evidence is laid out. And at the end of the day, the jury decides that beyond a reasonable doubt, this person is innocent. Like there's so much evidence that points in the direction of this person being innocent, that we're giving an innocent verdict. Is there a small percent of a chance that that person's actually guilty? Yes. But depending on the severity of the crime will um, determine how much evidence we need and how much we need to prove, right? So if something is light, you don't need a lot of, ev a, a lot of evidence. But if you're trying to prove whether someone is a, you know, serial rapists and you have to convict them for life the the burden of proof has to show beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is innocent so you have to have a lot of evidence and that's what we're aiming for we're aiming for a position of having a lot of evidence so that when people look at us they can actually say it's reasonable to believe in christianity 
And that can be a great starting point for building more and showing them more about our faith. First, we have to get to that point of them thinking it's logical and it's reasonable to believe in Christianity beyond a reasonable doubt because they have so much evidence. So that is the first introduction. Um, that was six weeks of material in 20 or 10 minutes. So hopefully I didn't lose you too much. Um, so we're going to do uh, two video sessions now. And I, I think I spoke to the people who were in person about this last week. Um, some people, when they see a certain type of video or a certain presenter, they shut down. So my husband is like this. If, if someone looks old or if it looks like it was made 20 years ago, they're just like, mm, I can't watch this. And I will say that this video is not maybe the most techie, amazing presentation you're ever going to see in your life. But just keep in mind, we have a faith that trusts something that was written 2000 years ago. So if you can find a 2000 year old book entertaining and live your life by it, you can surely watch a video that's only a few years old and might not have the best color or the guy who's wearing the most fashionable clothes. So listen to his words <laughs> and not how he appears or sounds. And um, I do want to give a disclaimer just in case someone finds this out and it bothers them. One of the presenters that we're going to be listening to, and it's the one we're listening to today, he's actually Catholic. Um, however, I watch all the videos before I show them to make sure that it agrees with everything that Blueprint teaches and it doesn't, you know, contradict in any way. Um, he is mainly focusing on historical evidence for Christianity. And so there's no um, conflict of interest there. They believe the same things that we do with regards to this. And he actually has one of the best courses I've found on it. So we're going to mainly be focusing on his stuff. Hopefully that doesn't bother anyone, but um, you can verify everything he's saying in multiple textbooks from people who are from all kinds of denominations, from Baptist to charismatic. So hopefully that doesn't bother you. Um, I'm also going to play this at uh, 1.25 speed just to make it go quicker because I feel like he does talk a bit slow. But you can um, put up your hand if you feel that's too fast for you. I just want to save us some time. There's a historical reason that I think has suffered from relative neglect, which tends to be more inductive than deductive. It doesn't lead to certitude because historical reason can only establish probability and degrees of probability on the basis of eyewitness testimony, on the basis of, well, you know, sifting through documents that either come from eyewitnesses or were written when eyewitnesses were still alive to kind of vouch for or invalidate it.
have said that Christians cannot be indifferent to history, let's talk about proper historical method. How is it that we go about finding historical truths or historical facts? What is the method by which we achieve this? Uh, the first thing we need to know about the nature of historical knowledge is that, of course, the obvious point is that the past in its actuality doesn't survive anymore. The past is gone. It's all over with. The only thing we have today from the past are leftover relics of some sort, like, like a, a text or some sort of archaeological evidence. That's how the past survives today. It survives in these kinds of things. It's preserved in text, artifacts, and things like this. So, so in other words, almost always our link to the past is, by, is through someone else's view. That, that's how we know about the past. It's always through someone else's view. Either we know about the past through some document they wrote or maybe it's a piece of pottery that they made or whatever the case may be, but it's always through the lens of this information from the past has been preserved through some form of human testimony. That's how we know about the past. And, and like I said in an earlier lecture, that's really how we know a lot about, uh, about the world just in general, about things in the world in general, is through human testimony. How, how do you know, for example, that there's a city in China named Beijing? Most of us haven't been there. I haven't been there. But I know that it's true based on human testimony. Now, knowledge based on human testimony, as we said in the earlier lecture, doesn't lend itself to 100% certitude. I keep bringing up this point, but, but I do so because I'm being emphatic. It's very important to know that historical knowledge doesn't lend itself to 100% mathematical certitude. History doesn't speak in those sorts of terms. It's always in terms of probabilities. So, for example, we don't know that Julius Caesar existed or even that George Washington was the first president of the United States. We don't know these things like we know 2 plus 2 equals 4. It is through the eyes and lens of other people, through, through this uh, human testimony. That's how we know these things. And it, it, it's, of course, possible maybe everybody has been lying to us about the existence of Julius Caesar. But, but that's not very convincing, is it? No, because we're not, we're not talking about historical knowledge as being as having the same certitude as mathematical knowledge. It, is, it, it speaks in terms of probability, okay? And the evidence is very strong that Julius Caesar was an emperor of Rome or that George Washington was the president of the United States. So even though it's possible that all those historical sources could be lying, it's not very reasonable. It's not very plausible. So you should understand this distinction between possible, you know, it's possible that something happened. Yes, yeah, possible that everybody that ever wrote about Julius Caesar lied. That's possible, but it's not very plausible. That's the other side of the equation. Plausibility has, has to, deals in terms of being reasonable, you know. It, it's possible that all the sources lied about Julius Caesar, but it's not very plausible. It's not very reasonable given all the, histor the, uh, the historical evidence that we have. So historical knowledge comes through human testimony, and this human testimony can be conclusive. It can be very conclusive, but not coercive. That, that's another good distinction to know, that historical knowledge can be conclusive without being coercive. It doesn't force you like 2 plus 2 equals 4 forces you into knowing that truth. That's just the nature of historical knowledge. If, if someone wanted to deny the existence of Alexander the Great, they could wave off you know, all that knowledge. All, all, those, all those sources were biased. Um, they, did, they had an agenda. Therefore, I don't believe in the existence of, of uh, Alexander the Great. You know, that, that would be a very unreasonable thing to do, and it, unreasonable because the, because the historical basis for it is, in fact, very probable. Okay? And it's that probability that we're aiming at with historical knowledge. So this is how we establish historical facts. So what is a historical fact? By historical fact, I think we mean either the historical event itself or some accurate description of that event. A historical fact is either the event itself 
or some accurate description of that event. That's what we mean by historical fact. Now, let's talk about general presumptions and burden of proof when it comes to history because this is very important. The general presumption we have about a historical document is very important. So we need, we need to talk about how do we form these general presumptions. So let's talk about the general presumptions about a historical document. In other words, what when we come to a historical document, we, we, we take this document and we begin to, to investigate it historically, what, if anything, should we presume about this document? Should we come to this document with any sort of presumptions in hand, let's say, okay? And there are different ways to go about this. The first school of thought is what we could call skepticism. You could take a position of extreme skepticism. When you come to a historical document, you just assume from the get-go that this has got to be wrong or false or inaccurate unless it's proven otherwise. You see, so it's false, and it's, it's historically inaccurate unless it can be shown otherwise by some other corroborating source, okay? This would be like the, uh, the guilty until proven innocent approach. Now the problem with this view is the one I brought up earlier, is that if you take this view regarding history, we'd have to be ag agnostic about almost everything in ancient history. We might as well shut down all the history departments, because if you take that approach, you would, be, you would not know very much about ancient history at all. As a matter of fact, you wouldn't know much about just any sort of history at all if you took this, this attitude of extreme skepticism as a general presumption when you come to a historical document. Okay. So that's one end of the extreme, though. That's one general presumption one can take, and some do take, when it comes to New Testament studies, as we said in, a early, in an earlier lecture. Now, but let's go to the other extreme of the spectrum. The second position on this is what we can call credulity. You can think of it as believableness. This is an innocent until proven guilty approach. In other words, when we come to a historical document, we want to look at it, we should think that it's telling us the truth unless there is good reason to think otherwise. Okay, there's an important qualification in there. We should think that a document is, is telling us the truth unless there is good reason to think otherwise. This is the position of credulity, and you can think of it as a document is innocent in terms of truth-telling until it's been proven to be unreliable or false. And there, there is actually a very strong argument for taking this, this position. There's an, there's an argument by a philosopher named Richard Swinburne who argues for this position, he calls it the principle of testimony. The principle of testimony is basically this. We should believe what others tell us unless there is good reason to think otherwise. That's the principle of testimony. It's the same thing as, you can call it a principle of credulity too. It's the same thing. We should believe what others tell us unless there is good reason to think otherwise. If someone, has told, if someone tells us, hey, I just saw this thing happen over here, we should believe that it's true unless there's good reason to, th to think otherwise. And what, why, why should we take this position? Well, without this principle, Swinburne argues very convincingly that with, without this principle, we would know very little at all, right? We would have to go verify everything that everybody tells us, which is obviously an impossible thing to do. But if, without this principle, Swinburne says, we would have very little knowledge of the world. We do, in fact, make use of this principle all the time in our daily lives. So in contrast with skepticism, this one has very much to say in favor of it. I think the principle of credulity has very much to say in favor, in favor of it. It doesn't lead you into gullibility because, again, there's that qualification in there. We should believe what others tell us unless, there's the qualification, unless there is good reason to think otherwise. So you're not going to just be duped all the time. You can be open to counter evidence, but you do take things at face value with, unless there's good reason to think otherwise. Okay. But I think, too, even though um, this, has, this is very strong, this, is, this, this can be very strongly argued for, um, I think we can strike a balance here a little bit. What I mean is this. I think there is a third sort of middle-of-the-road option here. The third school of thought says we can begin with an open mind. That is, we, we don't have any general presumptions yet when we, when we come to a historical document. We start with an open mind and seek to form 
a general presumption based on evidence. In other words, we take any, any historical document, it doesn't matter. You need to recognize that it is impossible, impossible to corroborate everything that's said in that document. It doesn't matter what kind of document it is, whether it's the a life of one of the Caesars or life of Alexander the Great, whatever the case may be, it's, when you've got a document in hand, it's impossible to go and corroborate every single detail that's said in that document. We just can't do it, okay? So we want to form what I think we want to do since we can't form, since we can't corroborate every single detail, we should aim to form a general reliability. We should, we should try to form some sort of general impression. We should come at this document with an open mind. We can look through the document, see what, de see what details we can corroborate, and then what does that tell us about the overall reliability of the document. Let's say we come at a document, we look at a historical document, and we can't corroborate everything, but we can corroborate some things. And so if he's saying, let's say, if he's saying 20 things, and he's telling the truth about five or ten of them, that, that earns him some respect. Everything, everything that he's told us has turned out to be true. He has earned some reliability. We start to form a general presumption, in this case, a general presumption of reliability. And by the same token, if we can check out a few things, and it turns out that it's false, that he's lying or he's just factually wrong, time and time and time again, this guy's always wrong, okay? Well, that again would, would, would form a negative general presumption about the rest of the things that we can't check up on. And this gives the historical writer a chance to earn the benefit of the doubt. Okay, we can, we can check up on some things, and if that comes out, comes out to be positive, that comes out to be factual, well then the, the writer at that point then earns the benefit of the doubt on those things that we can't check up on. We just don't have all the data. Again, it is impossible to corroborate everything in a historical document. So what we want to do here is, is if a general reliability is established, okay, the assumption uh, at that point is that the whole is factual, unless there's good reason to think otherwise. So that kind of, that kind of earn, in this case, this, this approach earns credulity. You come at it with an open mind, and you check up what you can. If all those things start to come out to be true, time and time again, then the rest of that stuff that you can't check up on earns the benefit of the doubt, and it's innocent until proven guilty. So this is a way for a document to earn a general reliability, or earn our credulity and our trust. And at that point, at that point, if that happens, a historically favorable presumption prevails, okay? So when we check up on this thing, this, this writer has shown to be gener generally reliable. We can take a historically favorable presumption at that point, even on those things we can't check up on. And so therefore, since we have that presumption, whenever someone comes along and says, well, he's wrong about this, they have the burden of proof now because this guy has already earned our trust regarding this, this event or whatever the case may be, regarding the document. It, when, deniers, when deniers come in, they need to bring some, some uh, evidence to show that he is in fact lying because everywhere else we've checked up on on this guy, he's told the truth. Why do you think he's not telling the truth here? That, that's my point here, okay? So the point is, again, once established as a generally reliable document, a historically favorable presumption prevails at that point, and the burden of proof falls on the deniers. That seems to me the most reasonable way to go when we talk about doing historical research. Scholars sometimes talk about a hermeneutic of suspicion. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word for uh, an approach to uh, interpretation. And so a hermeneutic of suspicion would mean that one begins, uh, in the case of the Bible or in the case of some other ancient document, suspecting that what one has in front of one is likely not to be accurate until one finds enough reasons to uh, reverse one's position. If we just uh, allow methodological skepticism or a hermeneutic of suspicion, typically speaking, we allow our worldview to guide our historical investigation. And it's the worldview of the skeptic that is guiding that historical investigation. A hermeneutic of suspicion is not appropriate for uh, ancient historical works in general. If it were followed, our world civilization textbooks would be blank until we reach to very recent centuries. The problem is manifest. 
Bad philosophy corrupts good history. They would never hold uh, these standards for any other literature from antiquity. It's always thrown against the New Testament writers. And so that's why what we should do is approach the text with neutrality and let the facts speak for themselves. If a skeptic says, well, I don't believe the Gospels, and they want to show that the Gospels aren't historically reliable, then the burden of proof is on that skeptic to show that they're not historically reliable. One has to develop a, a global perspective on the likely reliability of a given author, of a given work, and then uh, if there are repeated places where they can be discredited, yes, move to a hermeneutic of suspicion. Um, but otherwise, uh, one begins with a hermeneutic of trust or one would not have ancient history to write at all. In fact, that's what historians regularly do, um, except that some, when they come to the Gospels, then uh, change the ground rules, which uh, is not fair and is not going to uh, lead to uh, the most reliable historical results either. We want to have a level playing field. Can everyone hear me again? Switch to decaf. <laughs> that guy was fast. <laughs> okay, for the next video, I, I will leave it at, at, at normal speed and I won't speed it up at all. Um, like I said, we're, we are going to run longer than last week. Um, so I'm going to start the next video soon. And if you really need to go, feel welcome and you can listen in on the podcast or on the YouTube video later. Um, I don't want to use up too much time now with talking, but is there anyone who found something interesting uh, or something stood out to you? For me, and this is something that really irritates me in general, um, is the point that he brought up near the end where he was saying, how there's a standard for how you judge a historical document and all historians agree on it until it comes to the Christian texts. Then suddenly they change their method. Um, and if they kept that standard method, they would have to look at scripture as we're going to do and, and see that historically, these are recorded as accurate facts. The same way we know that um, Abraham Lincoln was a president of the, of the United States, and we trust that because we have documents stating facts about his life, the fact that he existed, was born at a certain time, and we have external documents verifying those facts, and so we believe it. And the gospel has the same thing. It has a bunch of documents recording the life of an individual and the things that he said and did, and we have external documents that verify that as well. Yet, we don't judge it the same because one of them claimed to be the son of God and the other one was just a president of the United States. Though if we use the principles about how to judge a historical document and we verify things that are said in the gospel. So if we can prove, like he was saying, that a lot of the things that were said were true and accurate, then we come with a position of trust that all the things that were said are true and accurate. And so it always bothers me that there's this double standard when it comes to uh, Christian texts versus uh, anything secular. Anyone want to say anything? I liked the notion of a document earning trust too, um, to say if certain things are proven, then it suddenly, it like shifts towards the like credulism of like, then we can at least until 
proven otherwise also take these other things as a fact. Um, and I feel like that's a really useful logic for um, looking at scripture, um, especially for someone who is a little more skeptical. For sure. Anyone else? Yeah, I saw something along the same lines. It seems like if you're going to be talking to someone or witnessing to them, uh, you need to be bringing up some of the more, I guess, believable things, something that maybe they've heard so many times, uh, it's already ingrained in them before you get, you know, below the surface a little bit. I just wrote down that you have to become Herman, the trustworthy, uh, that, that Hermanizing or whatever word you said, you got to start building trust with whoever you're with. Uh, so you. And, uh, I just want to also say, because I know sometimes this guy can speak a little up here. So um, the word hermeneutics basically means uh, how you explain and interpret a text. So the reasoning and the explanation and interpretation behind something. Sorry, George, did I interrupt you? Were you still saying something? No, I'm married, so I'm used to it. Thanks. <laughs> okay, uh, here we go. I'm not going to make it fast this time. A lot of New Testament scholars operate on quite bizarre principles of interpreting ancient texts. One ought to uh, investigate the reliability of the Gospels uh, in the same way that one would look at any other purportedly historical document from the ancient world. We don't want to privilege the Gospels if we're examining them historically, as some throughout the history of Christianity have done, but neither do we want to treat them more skeptically than other ancient historical documents, which seems to be uh, the direction of uh, certain wings of modern scholarship uh, and popular culture. I'm absolutely convinced that a lot of people who want to dispose of Christianity use arguments which would not be acceptable in normal historical research. And this is happening regularly and frequently. important criteria used in historical research. Three important criteria used in historical research. These are historical tools. Really, they're just an application of common sense. But they help us determine, these criteria help us to determine the truth in historical accounts. The first one is probably the most important one. This is the criterion of multiple attestation. 
Remember this one. This is extremely important. The criterion of multiple attestations is very common sense uh, notion here. It just simply means that the more people you have saying the same thing, the more likely that story is to be true. You see, the more the more the more people you have telling the same story, the more likely that story is to be true. So for example, if you have say three different historical sources talking all about this same event in the life of Caesar and that they all they're all saying basically the same thing, the more likely that event is historical. So this is a very important criterion for historical research because we look for multiple attestation. When you have that, when you have more than one source telling the same story, we can say that fact is multiply attested, multiply attested. That, it, that, that just means it enjoys the favor of, of being, of, of, of following, of falling into this category of satisfying multiple attestation. There are many people saying the same thing, more likely it is to be true. So the more witnesses you have, basically if you think of it as a, as a courtroom thing, right, the more witnesses you have telling the same story, the better it is for that case, okay? That's what the, the uh, criterion of multiple attestation is. Now you should also know, just as a, just as a, little, tit, as a little tidbit here, that in most ancient history, rarely, having something that's multiply attested is pretty rare. It's rare to get two sources saying the same thing, just because we don't have a lot of the old documents. A lot of times we just have one source and that's it. That's just the way it works out. So it's, it's rare to get something that's multiply attested. So it's, when you do have something like that, when you find a second source saying the same thing, that's a big deal because it's just pretty rare in, in studies of ancient history to have more than one source uh, attesting to, multiply attesting to an event. But we're going to see in a, in a little bit that when it comes to some of these facts about Jesus, we've got not just one, not just two, sometimes we have four sources saying the same thing about a certain event. The empty tomb is a, is a good example, but we'll discuss that a little bit later. Are there multiple independent sources that attest to the same event? So if you have one person say something, that would be good. But if you have multiple people who independent, one didn't hear it from the other, but they were independent and attested to it, that makes a whole lot more probable that the event occurred. The more independent sources we have giving complimentary testimony, the better off we should feel about the trustworthiness of uh, that information. It's, uh, it's commonsensical. Okay, so the next criterion is the criterion of embarrassment. Embarrassment. What is this? The criterion of embarrassment. This is just simply, again, another application of common sense. The, the idea here is that when a writer includes material that seems to be embarrassing or counterproductive to their cause, the more likely it is that statement is true. So when a writer includes embarrassing material that seems, at least at first glance, counterproductive to their cause, the more likely it is to be true. In other words, liars don't go out of their way to make up material that's counterproductive to their cause. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. For example, I have here in your text, if you wanted to make up a lie, let's say one of the ancient gospel writers wanted to make up a lie about Jesus being God. They're just going to lie. They're going to write this out and it's going to be a big fat lie. Okay? If, if, the, if this ancient writer wanted to make up a lie about Jesus being God, 
They wouldn't include certain embarrassing details. For example, like Jesus being betrayed by Judas or Jesus not knowing the day or the hour of the end times. Why would they include that material? If they're trying to make up a lie about Jesus being God, they're including material that seems to be counterproductive to that. Why doesn't God know the day or the hour of the end times, for example, you see? Why is God being denied by some of His closest disciples, you see? It seems to be counterproductive to their cause if their cause is to lie about Jesus being God. So therefore, the fact that these, these uh, pieces of information are included indicate, well, the reason why they're there is they're probably, they're probably true, you see. So the fact, the presence of embarrassing details is probably an indication of their truth. Why else would they, in fact, include them. The criterion of embarrassment simply refers, and again with any ancient historical document, to the inclusion of information that cuts against the grain of the author's main points. If a biographer of uh, Alexander, as one of his ancient biographers did, wanted to argue that he was the greatest military strategist the world had ever seen up to that point, then when one comes across uh, portions of Alexander's story that include those battles that he lost, and not just those that he won, include the times when he had to retreat and regroup, include the times when uh, he had to consult his generals and there was serious disagreement and some confusion and debate for some time before a decision was made as to how to go forward, then one becomes more confident that the historian is not whitewashing those details that prove somewhat potentially embarrassing for his overall thesis. And the same is true in the Gospels. And so when you see details in the Gospels that cut against this grain, that show Jesus is thoroughly human, as worn out, as puzzled, as angry, full of human emotion. When you see uh, him pouring out his heart to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there be any way to take this cup from me, this uh, cup of suffering, not my will but yours be done. When one reads those kinds of details that, that uh, the Gospel writers refuse to excise from their accounts, then we say, oh, yeah, they're not, they're not whitewashing the accounts. They're showing Jesus in all his complexity. The third criterion is the criterion of coherence. The criterion of coherence. Now this criterion says that whatever coheres or fits with what we already know should be taken as historically accurate. For example, in our, in our topic here about Jesus, the most well-established fact we have about Jesus of Nazareth is the fact of his, of his rejection and his execution by crucifixion. This is the most well-established fact we have about the life of Jesus. It's multiply attested in many different sources. Okay, so we know that Jesus died by crucifixion. He was executed. Okay, we know this for a fact. This is established. So therefore, any other details that would seem to fit with that or cohere with that should be taken as reliable too. So the principle of coherence says, in this case, look, we know that Jesus died on the cross, 
So anything that talks about him doing something that would get him killed, that would get him crucified, that should be taken as historically accurate too. Why? Because it just fits. It fits with what we already know. So it's reasonable to think that it is also accurate. Again, very much a matter of common sense. So the criteria like these help historians a lot. I hope you can see when we see things in history that are multiply attested, when we see embarrassing details being presented, when we, when we find facts that cohere with other things that we already know, this helps us. So criteria like these make material pass from being merely possible to being probable. And that's why these criteria are so important when we're doing historical research. If you can apply one of these criteria to a certain passage or a certain text, weeds out a lot of things, you see. So these, these criteria here are very important. They're extremely important, and they're used in research all the time because they are so crucial. Okay, so now let's talk about how we reach a historical conclusion, a historical conclusion. How do we make historical arguments? How is this done? And so on. How do we reach a historical conclusion? What we do in history is basically the nature of, of historical investigation is to test historical hypotheses. Okay, you've you got a set of data and you're going to find out which one. You, you come up with a set of hypotheses and you ask which one best fits the data. So to explain this in more detail, we call this process an inference to the best explanation. This is how we reach historical conclusions. We make an inference to the best explanation. What is this? It's just simply, you could think of it as a three-step process. Number one, the first thing we do, we make an inference to the best explanation, is we gather all of the relevant data. We get all the historical data, gather it all up. What is it that we're trying to explain here? The second step, is that we determine a pool of options. What are our live options? All right, we got this thing here. We got this historical event. We know that this happened, all right? How do we explain this, this happening? Why did this happen and so on? Well, it could be A, it could be B, or it could be C. So A, B, and C are our pool of live options. These are things that we think can explain this, this historical event and how it occurred and, and why it happened and or how it happened and so on. So. Basically what we do is we gather all relevant data, we determine what it is we're trying to explain, okay, what it is we're trying to explain, and then we come up with a, a pool of options on how we're going to explain it. Does that make sense? Okay, this is what we're going to explain. This is our data. Our pool of options are options on how we're going to explain it, okay? And we, how, do we, how do we determine this pool of options? Just, just based on background knowledge and common sense. Well, it could have been this, it could have been that, or it could have been that. And this is our pool of options. These are our historical hypotheses, all right? Step three, out of, that, out, of those pool of, out of that pool of options, out of those hypotheses, we're gonna select the best one. So step number three, select the best by seeing how well those explanations do in fact explain all the facts that we know. So step one, we gather all the relevant information. We determine what it is we're trying to explain. Step two, we come up with a, a set of options, a set of explanations that would in fact explain it. And step three, we pick the best one of those options. 
Pretty, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. We select the best one of the competing explanations by seeing how well they explain the evidence. Okay, so the keyword here, obviously, is best. What do we mean by best explanation? Well, there, there are a lot of things to consider, but I think three of the most commonly agreed upon ones are this. First of all, by best explanation, we mean that the explanation that has the most explanatory scope explanatory scope. Now that's just a big fancy word for saying it explains the most number of things. The, the best explanation explains more of the data than less perfect explanations do. So the best explanation has more explanatory scope. It explains more of the data. Secondly, the best explanation will have more explanatory power and plausibility. Explanatory power and plausibility. In other words, the best explanation will make the most sense. Given what we already know, the best explanation will fit with our background knowledge. It won't be anything far off and outlandish. The best explanation has more explanatory power or has more plausibility to it than other explanations do. And finally, the best explanation will sound just less ad hoc. It just means less made up. It doesn't sound fake, like you're just trying to make up a story to save your theory. That's what we mean by being less ad hoc. You don't have to start reaching for things that don't have any evidence. So this is what we mean by best explanation. The best explanation will have the most explanatory scope. It explains the most number of things. The best explanation will have more explanatory power and plausibility, meaning that it just makes the most sense given what we already know. And finally, the best explanation will be less ad hoc or made up. It won't make use of too many assumptions that don't have any evidential support. All right, so let's run through this one more time. I don't want you to get confused. I want to make sure you have all these things clear in your mind. When we are doing history, we are making an inference to the best explanation. This is a process where we, number one, gather all the relevant data. Number two, we determine our pool of options on how we're supposed to explain this data. And then number three, we select the best option. We're looking for the best explanation. The best explanation is the one that has the most explanatory scope, that is, explains the most number of things. The best explanation has the most explanatory power and plausibility, that it just makes the most sense given our, our background knowledge. And finally, number three, the best explanation is less ad hoc or made up or contrived in order to fit some preconceived theory. So that's how we do, that's how we reach a historical conclusion. And I think it's very, it's a very powerful way and very plausible uh, understanding of historical methodology, okay? Now with all, this with all this being said, there are three fallacies we need to be aware of when we're talking about historical research. Three fallacies to be avoided when we're talking about history. The first fallacy is the all or nothing fallacy. Let's put them over here. Fallacies to be avoided. Number one is all or nothing. What is this fallacy? This fallacy is simply this. People, people commit this all or nothing fallacy when they're looking at a historical document and they see one error in there. They see one problem. Oh, this guy was wrong about this. Therefore, throw the whole thing out. The whole thing's wrong. He made a mistake. That's an all or nothing fallacy. In other words, it's either got to be all right or we're throwing it out. None of it's right. You see? That's just simply a gross 
uh, overreaction to, to this. No historian would ever throw out a whole source just because it contains some error. We could, no historian would do that. If we did that, we wouldn't have any historical knowledge at all because a lot of historical sources are in fact, they do contain some error, but that doesn't mean, just because they make a few mistakes, that doesn't mean their whole thing is just thrown out completely, okay? So that's, that's uh, the point here, I guess, to put it in other, word, in other words, uh, is that a document doesn't have to be perfect in order to be a reliable source of historical information. I mean, take for example, just 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 witnesses. You know, you get a pool of witnesses that saw an accident. Some of those witnesses may may have a few details wrong, but that, that doesn't mean they're not good witnesses. Still, okay, we couldn't again know very much at all if we took the all or nothing approach. So that is a a fallacy we need to avoid when we're talking about historical research. Two is is one you should already know, given what we said already. The what we can call the absolute certitude fallacy, the absolute certitude fallacy. We can't say, what's this fallacy? We can't say anything happened in history unless we're absolutely certain that it did, you see. Again, this places too much, too much of a burden on historical knowledge. If this were true, we couldn't know anything about history at all. We don't know history with mathematical certitude. Okay, the third fallacy to be avoided is what we can call the bias fallacy, the bias fallacy. What is the bias fallacy? Well, it comes up when people say things like, you can't trust that historical source because that writer had a bias, okay? Look, historians are well aware of this problem. They deal with it all the time. This is nothing new. Every historian knows that writers have certain biases. Everybody has a bias. I have one, you have one. There's nobody in, on this planet that doesn't have a bias or some sort, but that doesn't mean we can't tell the truth. You know, just in other words, most of the time, what a bias just means is that we just care about something. You know, I have a bias towards certain things just because I, I care about it. That doesn't mean I'm gonna lie about it. It could mean that I'm more inclined to tell the truth, you see. So just because someone has a bias doesn't mean they're lying. Let me give you another example. We can accept Jewish sources about the Holocaust. Just because someone is Jewish and, and tells us about the Holocaust, that mere fact alone, that doesn't mean they're lying. Now they may be wrong. It could be that someone's uh, Jewish heritage makes them want, want to lie about the Holocaust, but merely the fact that they are Jewish and they have a certain strong feelings that is a quote-unquote bias about the Holocaust, that doesn't make them liars. So merely because someone has a bias, that doesn't mean they're not telling the truth. As a matter of fact, as I said a second ago, all historical sources have some kind of bias or another. And if we want to rule out sources because they have a bias, for goodness sakes, we couldn't know anything about history at all, okay? Because all, all historical sources always have some sort of bias in the background, but that doesn't mean they're not telling the truth. So now that we've covered this section on proper historical method, I think we are prepared now to look at those actual sources regarding the life of Jesus. If you say a bias is meaning that some, this is what someone believes to be the truth, well, it's a bias, but then, of course, everybody has a bias. Um, you, that, that's just a, an emotive term designed to discredit the text, basically. The, the simple question is, do they tell the truth or not? Or can we show that they tell the truth or not? Not what bias they have. That assumes that there isn't, that they're already fiddling the truth in some way or other. Well, that's a priori, that's begging the question. You can't do that. That's not a sensible way of setting the problem up. The question is not, uh, are the Gospels uh, theologically loaded? 
The question is, does the kind of theology they are trying to promote require or push one in the direction of falsifying or distorting history, or does it in fact require them to record it very carefully? Can everyone hear me? Yes. Awesome. Hopefully uh, you didn't get lost there at the end. I know he got pretty philosophical and that's why I kind of condensed everything in this one session because I didn't want people to quit two weeks in because they're like, I just can't follow what this guy is saying. So from next week on, it'll be more understandable because it'll be dealing with specific topics. But I do feel it was really important to kind of set that um, that, that foundation, because we're going to be using the methods that he speaks about when we're examining, um, the Bible essentially. Um, so just to kind of sum up what he was saying in a practical way, um, when we have historical data, we, uh, judge it by the criteria he spoke of, and then we try to make conclusions based on that data. So an example of this would be um, we collect a bunch of documents that tell us that Dalton seems to have gone to Walmart on Friday night. Okay. And we collect lots of documents with different viewpoints of what happened in his life um, that evening. Then we create a pool of options. So we say, okay, how did he get to Walmart? And we say, okay, well, he could have drove, um, he could have Ubered, he could have walked, he could have cycled, he could have teleported. We think of every possible conclusion to how he got from his house to Walmart. And then based on the data, we look at those options and we pick the best possible conclusion, the one that makes the most sense. So we look at data and we go, okay, one source says that he left his house at uh, 10 a.m., oh, 10 p.m. And we have another source that says they saw him in Walmart at 10.15. Therefore, we can rule out um, flying and uh, walking because there's no airport nearby uh, Walmart, so he couldn't have got there that way. And if he'd walked, he definitely wouldn't have arrived there in 15 minutes because we know the location of his house and we know where Walmart is. Then we have another data source that says um, he's pretty broke right now. So we're like, okay, well, probably didn't Uber then. It's probably cheaper to either cycle or take a car. And we rule out teleportation. Let's say we read a document by Donna that says Dalton teleported to Walmart. And we go, okay, well, he would have got there in 15 minutes, so it, it validates that, but we have no documents in the whole world that speak about teleportation being a real thing that we can do, so we're gonna eliminate her version of the story. And then we have Jack who says, I was driving past in my car and I saw Dalton in his car at five minutes past 10 p.m. And so we're like, okay, so it fits in, 
between the time frame of 10 and 10.15, it makes sense that you would see him in that time in his car. That means he would have got there by 10.15 and it wasn't an Uber. She identified his car. And so out of that, we say, okay, the best conclusion in this scenario is that Dalton reached Walmart by driving his own car. And so that's basically the method that you use that was oversimplified, but that's how we take a lot of data about the same event and we eliminate all the nonsense and kind of come to a solid conclusion on what was the most probable thing. Now, was it possible that Dalton stole a car and drive to Walmart? I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, Jack could have been wrong. She could have seen a car that looked like his car, but she's terrible at identifying car models. And so what she thought was his car was a white car that kind of looked like his car and she was wrong. And so therefore he actually stole a car to get there. But we don't have enough evidence to support that point of view. And so we eliminate that. There's always a small chance that we'll be wrong because it's historical data and we, it's never 100% accurate. But we can get to a point where we say beyond a reasonable doubt, we can trust that this was how Dalton got to Walmart. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so I do want to ask some questions, but if you need to hop off, I totally understand. But um, if you want to stay, great. I promise we won't go past 12 and I'll try to do it as quick as possible, but I really want to um, reinforce these ideas in your head. Um, the first one is pretty simple but it's kind of testing whether you listened right at the beginning. And it's, can you now, or have you ever identified with fideism? Does anyone remember what fideism is? It's the first thing that I said. Um, I don't know if we're raising hands or anything. <laughs> I'm just cutting right in. Um, I, I guess since I, my entire life has been very science focused too. I always lean more towards the um, rationalism side of it. Um, and thankfully um, with religion, I'm able to confidently sort of get that cross between rationalism and feudalism. But um, as far as most things in life, I'm, I tend to gravitate way more towards the rationalism instead of the strictly only faith-based Thank you. I would say that I was always kind of on the feudalism side because I was first introduced to Assembly of God kind of church, which is Pentecostal and very um, Bible bashing, <laughs> I guess you could put it. <laughs> um, so it was always, you know, it's, it's it's blind faith. But then as I got older, I started to be like, okay, well, I've got to have a little more rationalization here. I definitely, when I was a, a younger Christian, especially as my teen years going back, I was definitely more on the fideism side because, you know, my, my parents were actually brand new believers when I was born. And so they themselves were learning. And a lot of the things that were explained to me were very, I wouldn't say they ever like stopped me from asking questions, but their answers were always very faith-based. Like we trust it because God says it. And that's not a wrong position to have if you're already a Christian. Um, 
but you know, that's not going to work with everyone else that we're trying to evangelize and bring to the faith. And so as I got older, I started to do the research for myself and found the answers I was looking for and they affirmed my faith. So now I'm more on the, the reasonable faith side of things. All right, next question. Um, maybe I'm gonna skip that. Uh, why should we presume that historical data is trustworthy? So why should we believe that uh, a document is trustworthy and not just brush it aside and say, well, everyone has bias or there's not enough proof. Why should we come with a position of trustworthiness towards a document? Well, um, I think that he said in the video, like if we throw do all documents out for that reason, then we won't have anything to trust and and we won't know anything at all about history and what happened. Yes, exactly right. And um, I hope that the lecturers will cover this at some point. If they don't, I will cover it. But um, there is no historical event in history that has more documents attesting it than the stories in the Bible, the Bible itself. And I'm not talking about, hmm, you know, five documents more. I'm talking a difference of thousands of documents more than uh, the second most. And I think the second most is uh, the wars of Julius Caesar is the other event in history that has the most documents attesting it. And I think if I remember correctly, that's about 500 documents attesting to that he fought these specific wars in history. And when we're coming to Christianity, we're looking at around um, 25,000 documents and manuscripts that attest to the fact that Christianity and everything in the Bible was actual historical events. So that's a huge difference. So I always say to people, if you're going to reject what's written in scripture and say, uh, it didn't happen, it's a lie, it's untrue, everything has to go. You know, it would be different if maybe Christianity was 10th on the list in how many documents we have, right? And you go, okay, I don't believe in Christianity. So you kind of set that bar and say anything with X amount of documents and below, I throw out and Christianity falls in that scope. But since Christianity has the most attestations, if you throw it out, you must throw out all history, all ancient history has to go. Um, it's only modern times where we have more information because now everything is stored online, right? So now you have overwhelming data for everything although a lot of it is terrible data and inaccurate because anyone can write a blog about anything and they're taken as as the truth but if we're talking about anything from the 1900s back by far christianity trumps it all um so hopefully they'll go a bit more into detail with that at some point um last question name one two or all three main criteria of historical authenticity, authenticity and how they help us to discover historical truth. So in other words, in plain English, when you're looking at a document, what are the three things we can look for that give us a hint that the information in here is true and the person is not lying to us? 
If you only remember one, that's fine. If you want to be a superstar and name all three, that's good too. I'm not a superstar, but, um, and I don't remember the other term either, like the technical term they use, but multiple people saying the same thing. Yeah. Multiple attestations. That's correct. Um, embarrassing facts about the, uh, about the subject. Yes. Correct. Anyone remember the last one? Coherence. Ah, you checked your notes, so you're... <laughs> I'm cheating. It's not cheating, you took notes, that's fair. Um, yeah, that's, that's correct, that's all three of them. I actually focused, when I used to speak to people, I would focus a lot on the criterion of embarrassment. Um, and it wasn't just with things that, that Jesus said, but also the apostles, right? When they wrote down the gospels and spoke about each other, they recorded things that were counter productive and embarrassing to their faith, right? So for Peter to deny Jesus three times, if you're trying to convince everyone that Jesus is God, you might want to eliminate the fact that you yourself doubted it three times in a row, you know? Um, I'm trying to think I was about to name another example. Um, oh, when the, uh, sorry, my husband's trying to join the meeting. Um, hi, babe. <laughs> Um, when the, uh, disciples, uh, I think it's in the book of Acts when they speak about that, they fought. So like, uh, Paul and Barnabas had an, a disagreement and they landed up splitting and going in two different directions. Why would you record that? Why would you want people to know that fact, right? You want to portray this perfect religion where nothing goes wrong and everyone loves and everything's perfect. So you wouldn't record that, right? Um, the fact that Peter, uh, there was a time where uh, he would eat with Gentiles, but then when the Jewish people would come, he would, he would avoid the Gentiles and he'd only eat with the Jewish people. And Paul calls him out and is like, why are you being a hypocrite? You know, why would you record that, right? These are the leaders of the church, the apostles. So you want to portray them in a really good light, but they don't. They record these embarrassing details. Why? Because they're telling the truth. Like you wouldn't do that if you were trying to hide something, right? I mean, it's like saying, let's say you're accused of murder and they say that this person was shot with a gun, a specific gun, right? Um, I don't know guns, so I'm going to make up, I'm just going to say something. Let's say AK-47. That's probably the only gun I know, <laughs> right? And they're like, you're, you're accused and you're like, no, I'm really, I, I'm innocent. And let's say you really are innocent, right? And then they're like, do you own any firearms? And you're like, yes, an AK-47. And you're like, eh. you know, like, why would you tell that fact when it could like really destroy your cause, you know? And so every time we see that in scripture, something embarrassing, something counterproductive, it's actually proof that they're writing the truth because they just want to record things as they are. So that's all the questions I'm going to ask. Um, is there anything that was interesting to you, stood out to you, confused you? You have any insights anything you'd like to add i mean eric you saw everything so if you want to i'm being sarcastic you missed everything eric you have to watch the recording i definitely will
nothing. You're all like super bored and you're like, oh my gosh, how am I going to make it through the next few weeks? <laughs> so just to like whet your appetite, um, some of the topics we'll be covering in the next few weeks are, um, did Jesus actually live? Like, was he a real person? Can we prove that? We're going to cover um, who wrote the gospels. Like, and that you might think, oh, that's obvious. Their name is on it. But actually none of the gospels have names. Like no one's, no one said, hey, I'm Luke and I wrote this. No one signed their name at the end. They're actually unsigned gospels. And so how do we know who wrote them? Why did we attribute it to those people? Um, were the people who wrote those gospels eyewitnesses? Did they actually see what they were talking about? Or were they speaking to someone who had been an eyewitness? We're going to talk about uh, when the gospels were written. So what date were they written? How long after the crucifixion of Jesus? And was that time frame too long for them to remember? We're going to talk about whether uh, the translations are accurate. We're going to talk about whether we've preserved those documents um, accurately over 2000 years. Uh, we're going to talk about um, how we chose, how we chose, we didn't actually, but how the New Testament was constructed. So I'm sure you've all heard about the apocryphal books and gospel of Mary and Thomas and Peter and stuff like that, that aren't in the Bible. And a lot of skeptics say, oh, look, you guys are just throwing out anything that contradicts. Why did we throw those out? And can we prove that they're actually not inspired by God, that they're falsifiable? Why are we throwing them out, right? Um, technically, why did the early church throw them out? Because it's not like this is some new invention. The early church knew about those gospels. So you can read early writers and they refer to the gospel of Thomas and they'll tell you it's a bunch of nonsense and stuff like that. So, I mean, this is not something that in 1800 people were like, Oh, I don't like this book. Let's throw it out. You know, it, it was something that had been thrown out a long time ago. And we're going to discuss the reasons for that. Why did we keep the books that we now have in the Bible? Um, there's a few more topics, but those are the ones that are coming to mind. So hopefully that gets you interested and you'll keep coming back and they won't be as, philosophical as as this week so please come back <laughs> all right um dalton if i put you on the spot and ask you to close in prayer for us will that make you uncomfortable no i'm not great at praying out loud so i want to do it more often so i can get a little better okay awesome um so thank you god for bringing us all together here today um and giving us the chance to um both grow closer to you and closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, we thank you for Cassandra's leadership um, and the things she's going to teach us during this class, Lord. And we are truly blessed to be able to um, be in a place in life where in the midst of everything that's happening, we can still get together um, with the common, the common factor of you in mind, Lord. And I pray for everyone's, everyone's needs and what's on, their, what's on their plate, Lord, and that they're able to manage it and able to manage it through you, God. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.